Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 32, Uninvited Guests. In today's episode, we're going to see firsthand the power of the Parisian sans-culottes as they voice their displeasure at King Louis' attempt to reassert his political power. We're also going to dive into the forces driving the radicalization of the city's famous revolutionary protagonists and explore how the press, the clubs, and the sections were all doing their bit to help mobilize the people of Paris. This will also help us set down the groundwork for the next few episodes because, believe me, things are about to escalate. Now, Before we get into it, a big thank you to everyone who attended the Intelligent Speech Conference last week. I had a blast, I'm sure those of you who came did too, and it was fantastic to meet some of you, to answer your questions, and just lose track of time talking about history. Hopefully next year we can do it in person. Also, a tremendous thank you to everyone who has been doing their bit to help promote the show. Some people have left some amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. Others have been giving the show shout-outs on social media. I just wanted to take the time to say that I do see all of this, and it brings a huge smile to my face. And so thank you so very much for taking the time to support the show. Of course, a special thank you to all the Patreon supporters of the podcast who are helping me cover my costs and getting grey history that little bit closer to the point which we all want to reach, which is, of course, more episodes more often. Believe me when I say I will produce more regularly as soon as I can, and to everyone making a small donation to the show, a heartfelt thank you. Since the last episode, there are even more generous listeners helping the show. So, a big thank you to the new noble citizens, Catherine, Laurie, and Russell, the new True Revolutionaries, Lindsay, Noah and Daniel, the new Patreon and Philosoph, Michael, the new National Hero, Patiella, and the new Champion of the People, George, joining Cynthia and Jeffrey as extra generous sponsors of the show. I know I may sound like I'm repeating myself at times, but I really genuinely do appreciate all your help in helping to make the podcast even better. I love running the show, I love the research, the rabbit holes, the writing, the subtle and not-so-subtle scattered movie references. I love it all. And to everyone who's helping make Grey History continue to be a reality, thank you. A reminder that you can help the podcast by either making a small donation to the show via Patreon, or by telling your friends about Grey History. If everyone listening donated just $1 or found just one new listener per episode, then by Christmas, we could be talking about a weekly grey history. So please, do find that next grey history lover. Your friend, your family member, your colleague, your schoolmate. Or please, sponsor the show by Patreon. Anyway, I have talked for long enough. 
So let us get in to the grey. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 32, Uninvited Guests. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you suddenly realised that you were witnessing a disaster in the making? I'm talking about one of those situations where you observed your surroundings and something triggered in the back of your mind and it dawned on you that things were about to pop off. Perhaps you were at a family dinner and your uncle just broached the topic of wokeness. Almost instantaneously, you notice your cousin reach for their wine glass as you detect the first signs of steam arising from their siblings' eardrums. Alternatively, perhaps you were in a work environment, collaborating on one of those Byzantine multi-departmental projects, which equates not to efficiency nor agility, but rather pain, misery and suffering. You all knew you were witnessing a slow-motion train wreck, but no one was convinced that jumping in front of Thomas would actually prevent his seemingly inevitable derailment. Whatever the situation, I'm sure we've all found ourselves at various points in time in one of these sorts of scenarios. A scenario where you evaluate all the information at hand and you recognise that things are about to escalate. Quickly. By June 1792, This was the sort of situation that Jean-Marie Roland found himself in. Roland was the Minister of the Interior, and as he surveyed France in the middle of 1792, he foresaw a disaster waiting to happen. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the troubles facing France were numerous. Firstly, the army was dysfunctional and the war had started terribly. Secondly, religious and political divisions gripped the nation. Thirdly, an all-consuming environment of conspiracy and fear distorted the public discourse and fueled a combination of paranoia and factionalism. Finally, bread prices, commodity shortages and the horrors of inflation filled the ranks of the hungry and the desperate. These problems affected the countryside, the towns, and the cities. And these problems had consequences. Violent unrest increasingly gripped the nation as division, hunger, and distrust created the perfect environment for civil disorder. As the Minister of the Interior, Roland would have been receiving reports from all corners of the kingdom, informing him of this deteriorating situation local officials being killed for trying to maintain order in the market square, peasant bands burning chateaus and feudal rights, communities violently attacking or defending non-constitutional priests, makeshift militias causing more harm than good. These were the sorts of reports Roland was receiving and the sorts of reports fueling his conclusion 
that he was witnessing a disaster in the making. However, of particular concern for Roland was not so much the situation in the provinces, so much as it was the situation in Paris. Closer to home, a group of Parisians that we know as the Saint-Culottes were becoming more vocal, more militant, and more organised. The Saint-Culottes consisted of a range of individuals. Artisans, craftsmen, journeymen, factory workers, even small business owners, and members of the urban poor. This group shared many of the same grievances of those in the kingdom's towns and countryside. Food shortages, inflation, religious tensions, all promoted division and disorder. However, despite these similarities, the Sankalots were still unique in a very important way. Unlike the peasants and other non-urbanised groups outside the major cities, disorganised disturbances were increasingly accompanied by organised demands. The Sankalots weren't just participating in the occasional bread riot or a spontaneous redecoration of an aristocratic chateau. No, the Sankalots and their leaders were organising in far more coherent and unified ways and they were using this organisation to push for a set of radical demands. Demands that weren't just economic in nature, but political as well. Given the size of the Sankalots and their willingness to demonstrate for their demands, this increasing organisation presented a real challenge for the interior minister. From Roland's perspective, some of the mainstream political demands of the Parisian Sankalots would not have caused him tremendous concern. Roland was a Girondin, an associate of Rousseau, and thus Roland shared the common left-wing position of utterly detesting the distinction between active and passive citizens. However, on the economic side of the equation, the radical demands of the Sankalots would have given the interior minister concern. The 58-year-old was a former inspector of manufactures. He was knowledgeable in the affairs of business and connected with philosophers and economists alike. Ideologically, Roland, like many Girondins, was not inclined to adopt the prescriptive economic solutions of the Saint-Culottes. Price maximums and death penalties for hoarders and speculators ran contrary to his ideology. But what really gave Roland concern was not so much the current actions and demands of the Saint-Culottes, but what those actions and demands could evolve into. Particularly with the assistance of the revolutionary press, the city's political clubs and societies, and finally, Paris's 48 municipal sections. One thing that we didn't discuss in the last episode was the factors which were helping to fuel the radicalisation of the workers and artisans of Paris. We've discussed at length the numerous woes troubling the nation, but it's been some time since we've discussed the forces helping to convert the troubles of the people into the troubles of the government. As a result, before we discuss how Roland attempted to fix the troubles of the government, we're going to briefly discuss the situation surrounding the press, the political societies, and the sections. Let's start with the press. 
The press had long been an instrumental force in sustaining the revolution's momentum, even as far back as 1787, when the Assembly of Notables refused to endorse Cologne's reforms, and in 1788, when Brienne's ministry battled with the Parlements. By mid-1792, the press had recovered from the repressionary tricolour terror of the prior year, and once more, a free press published an array of competing ideas. This not only included left-wing ideas, but royalist right-wing ideas as well. Although, to be clear, right-wing publications were firmly in the minority. In this environment of a truly free press, emerging revolutionaries, national deputies and well-established journalists all lobbied for a variety of political, economic and social reforms. However, in the case of some journalists, their suggestions for national rejuvenation shouldn't be classified as reforms so much as, well, extrajudicial necessities or unjustifiable crimes, depending on one's point of view. Marat, for example, had long lobbied for the mass execution of hundreds of aristocrats and had recently called for the establishment of a dictatorship. Given Marat's popularity amongst certain cohorts of Paris, these calls were certainly unsettling to the interior minister Roland, particularly when combined with the increasingly anti-bourgeois tone of some revolutionary publications. Remember, the Sankalots were starting to redefine the term aristocrats to include well-off and well-connected members of the Third Estate. That new definition included Roland and many of his Girondin associates. As a result, the influence of the increasingly radical and violent press was of great concern to those bourgeois officeholders who found themselves grouped with the nation's former nobility and thus with the enemies of the people. Roland was justified in his concern about the impact of the radical press. As the American ambassador William Short noted in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, A thousand such extravagancies repeated every day cannot fail in the end to produce an effect on the minds of the people. Before moving on, and as a matter of grey history, I should note that it wasn't just the radical left-wing publications which were publishing all sorts of quite worrying demands. The most brazen right-wing journals advocated similar extremes, publishing lists of revolutionaries who would be righteously killed once foreign soldiers took the capital. Accompanying these lists were images of the streets of Paris, painted in blood, Jacobins and Sankalots alike providing the artistic material for the ultra-royalist renovation. Thus, both ends of the political spectrum were feeding the polarisation of the masses. It just so happens that we focus on the left-wing extreme. And this is partially a reflection of the fact that the far-left publications were more numerous and were more popular. And it's also a partially a reflection of the fact that Marat, Hebert and other revolutionary journalists were actually the ones that came to power. However, 
it wasn't just the press that was back in business. Parisian political clubs and revolutionary societies also sprung back to life after the reactionary final months of the National Assembly. While the large and influential Jacobin Club housed the competing Girondin and Montagnard factions, it was in many ways the smaller clubs which were playing an outsized role in radicalising and energising the common people of Paris. Across the political spectrum, more than 50 clubs were operating in the capital by mid-1791. That is to say, prior to the flight to Varennes. Some of these societies failed to survive the tricolour terror, but many had re-established themselves by mid-1792. Of the 30 or so fraternal societies championing the revolution's continued progression, the Cordelier Club is perhaps the most noteworthy. Introduced back in episode 17, the Cordeliers was originally formed in response to the suppression of Paris's 60 districts, which the club vehemently opposed. None of the club's founders were deputies of the National Assembly, and thus the club never had any reason nor desire to defer to either the national or municipal government. Quickly establishing itself as a vanguard of the radical revolution, journalists, political theorists and progressive revolutionaries flocked to the club as it pursued a broad and revolutionary agenda. The Cordeliers, along with other like-minded clubs and societies, sought to champion the expansion of democracy and equality as it defended the rights and the interests of the common people. Furthermore, The Cordeliers, in particular, sought to uncover the plots and conspiracies which were endangering the revolution, with the club symbol, an open eye, representing the society's eternal vigilance. Through their various activities, the Parisian clubs slowly radicalised the city's sections and the city's sans-culottes. In a move that saw the clubs gain even greater influence in the capital, the political societies of Paris started to cooperate. The fraternal societies started to lay the groundwork for a centralised committee which could coordinate their activities and their demands. By beginning the process of cooperating as a larger political organisation, the initially disparate clubs were amassing even greater power power which could be used to channel the political and economic grievances of their members, a.k.a. the sun-culottes. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Heavily intertwined with the city's radical clubs were the city's radical sections. Now, the 48 sections of Paris are going to be very important over the next few episodes, so it's certainly worth diving into the detail. To recap, back in 1790, the National Assembly endorsed reforms which upended the administration of the capital. 
These municipal reforms targeted Paris's districts. The 60 districts of Paris each had their own electoral assembly, and these assemblies had been summoned as part of the elections for the Estates General. These bodies, however, never disbanded, and throughout 1789 and early 1790, they took over a range of administrative functions in their localities. The problem for the national government of the assembly and the municipal government of the Paris Commune was that the radical districts started to vie for power and influence within the new revolutionary order. They voiced official positions in key debates. They helped to organise petitions and demonstrations. They even demanded the National Assembly consult them prior to passing controversial decrees. Considering that the National Guard was also organised along district lines, these assemblies had become a little too big for their boots. Continuously challenging the power of both the assembly and town hall, the reforms of 1790 were meant to put these local assemblies back in their place. And from this perspective, these reforms failed miserably. At a high level, since May 1790, Paris was divided into 48 primary assemblies, often referred to as sections. Each section elected representatives to sit on the municipal council, and each section also elected its own committee. The role of this section committee was administrative in nature, helping to implement the policies of the municipality and helping to run the day-to-day governance of the city. Thus, under the new system, eligible citizens that is to say, active and not passive male citizens, directly elected the mayor, and as part of their section assembly, they also elected their representatives to the municipal council and their own local section committee. In keeping with the times, this was a very representative form of democratic government. However, keeping an avenue open for more direct democracy a clause was inserted into the reforms which permitted the section assemblies to gather whenever 50 citizens requested it. And as you can imagine, this threshold was pretty damn easy to hit. The result was that the section assemblies essentially sat in permanent session. Having established themselves as a permanent fixture, the sections, particularly the city's more radical sections, proceeded to do much of the same troublesome activities that the districts had conducted. They inserted themselves into debates. They organised petitions. They collaborated with their local communities and committees to ignore any municipal decree that they didn't particularly like. Over time, many radical sections started to admit passive citizens, helping to further radicalise the assemblies as well as the debates which they conducted. Meeting for regular deliberations, these assemblies became a hub for revolutionary activity and a magnet for those who believed in the promise of a more egalitarian and democratic France. In short, like the districts before them, the radical sections of Paris continued to undermine the authority of the assembly and the municipality. Now, It should be no surprise that some historians take quite a negative view of all of these developments. One common approach is to argue that moderate men, aka those with jobs, 
didn't have the time to participate in these section shenanigans. And so it was the time-rich dregs of society that actually participated in all these assemblies. Now dominated by such undesirables, the debates and agendas of the sections naturally became radical, resulting in proposals, petitions and positions which were overtly hostile to the status quo. Here's one particularly negative view of the situation, recited by historian Ippolite Tain. A view which claims that non-radical views were suppressed by the most violent revolutionaries. It also directly links the role of the clubs and the societies in directly influencing the debates of the section assemblies. Every section assembly is composed of a dozen factious spirits, members of the club, who drive out honest people by displaying cudgels and bayonets. The proceedings are arranged beforehand at the club, in concert with the municipality, and woe to him who refuses to adopt them at the meeting. They go so far as to threaten citizens who wish to make any remarks with instant burial in the cellars under the churches. Historian Ippolite Tain was never a huge fan of the Parisian Saint-Culottes, and so his criticisms come as no surprise and should definitely be greeted with a healthy dose of scepticism. Nevertheless, they do reflect the prevailing view of many more conservative historians as they approach the topic of just how some of the city's sections fall under the influence of such radical leadership. Now, it's definitely an oversimplification to assert that working men lost interest and that professional activists were the only ones who remained, to borrow terms from our own times. Even prior to the admittance of passive citizens, the assemblies were causing a headache for the established authorities, and thus, wealthier active citizens in some radical sections were already causing that headache prior to the inclusion of many sun-culottes. However, what's really important here is that, in certain sections, these assemblies did become the domain of very progressive politics. As such, over time, many citizens who were committed enthusiasts of the revolution did become grassroots leaders of their local sections. Interestingly, many of these local leaders were also influential members of revolutionary clubs and societies, meaning that the two forms of urban and local associations were often heavily interlinked. Unlike the clubs, the assemblies and the committees of the Parisian sections had the benefit of being official bodies, and so the section assemblies became a key element in driving the revolution forward. In fact, historian Peter Kruputkin asserts that the sections became the centre of the revolutionary initiative. Undoubtedly, this was helped by the fact that the line was blurred between radical sections and radical clubs. But the point remains. By mid-1792, the section assemblies and their committees were meeting on a regular basis. Not only did they continuously challenge the established authorities, but they also propagated their own democratic and egalitarian principles. 
often closely linked to the leaders of the revolutionary clubs and societies. The leaders of the sections held enormous power within their local communities. As the sections and the clubs became more radical, and as they became a meeting point for Parisian sans-culottes, particularly once passive citizens were admitted into the assemblies, then these sections not only gained the ability to influence the affairs of the municipality, but also of the national government, which called the city home. In short, the press, the clubs and the sections were a significant driving force behind the increasing radicalisation and mobilisation of the Parisian sans-culottes. Combined with the nation's many woes, Roland, the Minister of the Interior, saw a disaster waiting to happen. And to make the situation worse, the passage of time was hardly helping the situation. In May and June 1792, the Girondins advocated for radical remedies in the aftermath of the unexpected defeats on the nation's frontiers. These remedies were discussed in episode 30, but in short, they were as follows. Firstly, the new laws targeted the activities of refractory priests and enabled the imprisonment and deportation of those clerics which refused to adhere to the law. Secondly, the king's constitutional guard was dissolved. Thirdly, the assembly summoned 20,000 volunteers to the capital. These recruits, which history knows as the Federes, were to act as a new force of protection against the revolution's numerous enemies. Of the three controversial measures, Louis decided to approve one of them. Lock in your guesses now. Okay, are you sure? Double sure, fully locked in, perfect, right. Okay, so for those of you who selected option number two, abolition of the constitutional guard, you were on the money. In a move which historian Simon Sharma characterises as Louis trading his strong cards for his weak, the king agreed to dissolve his guard while vetoing the laws regarding the priests and the federates. The deeply religious king couldn't consent to the persecution of good Catholics, while pretty much everyone who wasn't a Girondist had reason to distrust the proposed force of volunteers. Unfortunately for King Louis, this left him in a rather precarious position. He was not literally defenceless, but the Constitutional Guard was now no more, and the barrier between the city's prisoner and the city's people was substantially reduced. Unsurprisingly, the Legislative Assembly didn't respond kindly to the King's vetoes. The deputies of the nation firmly believed that refractory priests had to be dealt with. Many of the nation's woes could be tracked back, supposedly, to these seditious clerics. Likewise, in an environment characterised by plots and conspiracies, The king's veto of the Federes was interpreted by some to be proof of the monarch's sinister intentions. Perhaps his refusal to protect the capital with the new volunteer force was evidence that the protection was required and that dark forces were readying to strike with the assistance of the court. For a city already akin to a tinderbox waiting for a match, 
the king's decision to add political deadlock to the mix was a dangerous one. By using his vetoes to protect the priests and deny the volunteers, Louis outraged the press, incensed the clubs, and horrified the assembly. It was at this moment that Roland decided to act. Or perhaps more accurately, his wife, Madame Roland, decided to act. Now, I have introduced Madame Roland in the bonus episode titled The Brousseauan Ministry. In that episode, you'll find a far more thorough introduction of this couple, including the controversies surrounding Madame Roland. However, a quick introduction is as follows. Twenty years younger than her husband, Marie-Jeanne Roland was a controversial and divisive figure of the revolution. Her admirers would compliment her wit, her beauty, and her ability to inspire and lead men in an era where women were all too often relegated to the shadows. She was a passionate supporter of the revolution and of republican principles. The equal of her husband, she was the force not only behind him, but at times the entire Girondin faction. But while some praise this enthusiast of liberty and philosophy, others do not share such admiration. Her detractors would attack Madame Roland as snobbish, promiscuous, and both incapable of judging a man's true character, as well as being too eager to judge that character. Given her influence over the Girondins, this was no small flaw. Again, if you're after a far more thorough introduction to the Rolands, then check out episode 28, The Brousseauan Ministry, available to all Patreon supporters of the show. Getting back on track, by June 1792, Roland, the Minister of the Interior, foresaw an imminent disaster. The king's vetoes were further dividing a nation already on the brink of civil war, and so the minister decided that something had to be done. And by that, what I really mean to say is that the Rolands collectively foresaw an imminent disaster and agreed collectively that something had to be done. As previously discussed, the Constitution of 1791 did not lend itself to breaking political deadlocks. The Assembly could not override the King's vetoes, and the King could not dissolve the Assembly. Thus, the Rolands had to come up with a new mechanism to break the impasse which was consuming the nation. Eventually, they agreed on a solution. That solution was big. It was bold. It was outrageous. That solution was a letter. Yes, a letter. And no, for those Team America fans out there, it was something far greater than a letter telling King Louis that the revolutionaries were very, very angry. In mid-June 1792, Roland proceeded to read a letter to the king. The contents were astounding. At times reprimanding, at times pleading, the letter was a mixture of advice and thinly veiled threats. According to Roland, the enemies of the revolution schemed against the nation in the name of the king. Louis, therefore, had to make a choice. Was he in favour of the old order? Or was he in favour of the new? 
informed that the Declaration of Rights had become the nation's political gospel and that the Constitution had become the kingdom's religion. There was no ambiguity as to which choice he should make should he wish to reign as a beloved and fair king. Roland then went further and asserted that extreme fermentation was occurring in all parts of the kingdom. Roland barely concealed the implicit threat as he warned Louis that when laws were not sufficiently vigorous to meet a situation, citizens take matters into their own hands. Should terror spread through Paris and discord and stupor strike its outskirts, Roland asserted that the whole of France would rise in indignation. The result would be civil war, and the minister was clear that the people would deploy all the energy required to eliminate those who had provoked such national horrors. In short, Roland asserted that Louis's actions, including the king's recent vetoes, endangered his throne, his nation, and his life. The letter left little to be interpreted. Louis was essentially informed that his obstruction had fueled the unrest crippling the kingdom, and that he had increased the likelihood of anarchy and rebellion. For a monarch who was raised to believe in absolute monarchy, and his divine right to rule, Roland's behaviour must have been truly astonishing. Here was a commoner unapologetically reprimanding the King of France. In fact, to say Roland did so unapologetically might not go far enough. Here are Roland's own words justifying to the king his extraordinary actions. I know that stern language of the truth is rarely welcome close to the throne. I also know that, because it is almost never heard there, that revolutions become necessary. I know above all that I must hold the truth up before your majesty not only as a citizen subject to the law, but as a minister honoured with his confidence, or at least cloaked in a role that presumes it. I know of nothing that could prevent me from fulfilling a duty that is so clear to me. It probably doesn't come as a surprise that King Louis XVI didn't take this overly well. Within days of Roland's dramatic challenge to royal authority, Louis dismissed him from the ministry. Joining Roland in the metaphorical shark tank were other Girondin ministers. The Brousseauan ministry had only been installed in March, and now, just three months later, the prominent Brousseauans of that ministry, the interior minister, the finance minister, and the war minister, had all been dismissed. Once more, a ministerial crisis threatened to become a political catastrophe. If one was to compare the dismissal of Roland and his colleagues to previous events, Roland's dismissal was closer to the departure of Jacques Necker in July 1789 than it was the Comte de Narbonne in March 1792. 
In a similar vein to Necker's dismissal, the purging of the Girondin ministers was seen by some revolutionaries as heralding an attack of the counter-revolution. Rumours had swirled for months about the sinister Austrian committee established within the court, and Louis's decision to refuse the summoning of 20,000 volunteers had only added to the suspicion that the monarchs were actively working against the revolution. As the Girondin deputies of the National Assembly attacked the king's actions, assisting them were elements of the revolutionary press and the political societies of Paris. Joining the chorus were, of course, the radical sections. Amongst some of the most vocal cohorts of the capital, the outrage was staggering. In a troubling development for the king, the situation continued to deteriorate further. De Maurier, the influential minister for foreign affairs, had originally remained in office. Known for his ambition and ideologically far more of a Fillon than a Girondin, de Maurier hoped to use the ministerial crisis to his benefit. In the aftermath of the dismissal of Roland, Fillon ministers were appointed to powerful posts, and de Maurier lobbied the king to accept the Assembly's controversial decrees. To be clear, it wasn't that de Maurier actually favoured the decrees, so much as he saw their acceptance as a means of reclaiming the political initiative. Louis, unsurprisingly, remained unmovable towards the laws he despised. And furthermore, his personality was completely unsuited to the Machiavellian manoeuvring advocated by de Maurier. Despite his initial plans to remain a minister, the situation changed quickly. The Assembly, led by influential Girondins such as Brousseau and Vernou, was appalled by the Girondin ministers being dismissed after just a few months in office. An inquiry was quickly launched, while the legislature decided to publish copies of Roland's letter and distribute them throughout the kingdom. Fearing the revenge of an assembly controlled by Girondin deputies and unable to sufficiently influence the king into taking the actions he deemed necessary, de Maurier promptly left office and returned to the army. Thus, by the middle of June 1792, the king had lost his interior minister, his finance minister, his war minister, and now his foreign minister. This at a time when the nation was beset with unrest, crippled by inflation, threatened by a disastrous war, and isolated in the international community. Unsurprisingly, the elevation of Fillon's to the ministry hardly silenced the critical voices in the clubs, the press, the sections, and the assembly. Worryingly, Roland had taken dramatic actions because he believed that the nation was on the brink of civil war and anarchy. Since that point in time, in just a matter of days, the existential threat facing the kingdom had only gotten worse. The nation found itself in an even more perilous position as it was consumed by a fresh political crisis. It took just over a week for Roland's predictions of disaster to come to pass. On the 20th of June, 1792, two large crowds gathered in the Place de la Bastille 
and the Salpetriere. Converging on the National Assembly, these armed demonstrators were officially protesting the dismissal of the Girondin ministers, which had occurred the week prior. Furthermore, this was the anniversary of the tennis court oath, and so the crowd sought not only to lobby for the restoration of the ministers, but also plant a celebratory tree in the Tuileries Gardens. News of the approaching mob, composed primarily of sun-culottes, eventually reached the assembly. As you can imagine, panic immediately struck some members, particularly when they discovered the size of the crowd. One deputy despaired. 8,000? We are only 745. We must adjourn immediately. The alarm was only momentary. Seeking to calm the restless chamber, another deputy leapt to his feet and reminded his colleagues that while 8,000 citizens marched in Paris, the assembly represented millions more. Be that as it may, a group of demonstrators soon burst through the assembly's doors. In a surprising show of respect to the chamber, the intruders promptly withdrew when asked to do so by the assembly's president. With a semblance of order restored, the assembly permitted the demonstrators to enter, commencing a scene which must have horrified and disgusted many of the deputies present, particularly those on the right. For the next few hours, a makeshift procession occurred throughout the nation's chamber. Singing revolutionary songs, protesters carried copies of the Declaration of the Rights of Man as they lobbied for their petition to be accepted. Flags were waved, slogans were shouted, banners were borne as the heavily armed crowd made their position clear. The Constitution or death. Long live the sun-culottes. Recall the patriotic ministers. Channeling their anger at the king's vetoes, the leaders of the crowd made it clear. The will of one man should not be allowed to override the will of 25 million. As if an angry mob, armed with muskets, pistols, pikes, pitchforks, sabres and knives, wasn't intimidating enough, the protesters bore a calf's heart fixed to a pike. Next to the heart was a piece of parchment, inscribed with a simple line, the heart of an aristocrat. This commotion continued for hours, until the crowd departed the assembly and soon found itself demonstrating outside the king's residence. It's at this point in time that this episode of Revolutionary Deja Vu continues to mimic 1789. Reminiscent of the October days, the crowd soon managed to find an unlocked entry into the king's residence. Palace Invasion 2.0, if you will. Pouring into the palace, the armed demonstrators hacked down the doors as they sought to frantically find the king. As they did so, shouts went up, which could only have horrified the occupants of the palace. Down with Monsieur Vito, Monsieur Vito to the devil. Eventually, the crowd located its target, and luckily for Monsieur Vito, this episode will not be discussing his rendezvous with Satan. 
Soon cornered with his sister hiding behind him, Louis suddenly found himself the host to hundreds of uninvited guests. Only a few guards separated the king from an angry, hungry and heavily armed mob. Initially, the insults and threats were thick and fast. Sign the decrees, down with the priests, tremble tyrants, recall the ministers, repeal the vetoes. These were the slogans bellowed at the cornered monarch. But Louis, surprisingly, showed a level of courage and determination which had escaped him in recent years. No shortage of historians praise his handling of a situation which must have been terrifying. Louis was calm, composed, resolute and admirably steadfast. Plainly, he told the crowd that This is not the place, nor the way, to obtain what you want. As threats and denunciations came his way, he responded politely, yet firmly, as he insisted upon his good intentions. Despite his life clearly being in danger, he refused to recall the Girondin ministers and rescind his controversial vetoes. Remaining calm, he steadily sought to defuse the situation, and reassured the few guards he had that all was well, even though it clearly wasn't. Insisting that he wasn't afraid of his own people, the king instructed a guard to put a hand on his chest and observe that his heart wasn't palpitating. During this ordeal, Louis famously put on a red liberty cap, a revolutionary symbol popularised by the Saint-Colottes. The king also soon found himself toasting to the nation's prosperity with a bottle of wine. Ignoring concerns that it might be poisoned, he drunk and exclaimed, People of Paris, I drink to your health and to that of the French nation. Despite these developments, the situation was still tense and could quickly have deteriorated with one erroneous move. Many in the mob deeply distrusted, if not despised the king, including the leaders of many of Paris's most radical sections. Louis Lejeune, a butcher and influential Saint-Culotte leader, made his views plain to the king. Monsieur, you must hear us. You are a villain. You have always deceived us. You deceive us still. Your measure is full. The people are tired of this play-acting. Having been cornered for hours, with sabres and pistols regularly waved about his face, the king was eventually rescued by the Parisian mayor, Jerome Petion, at about six in the evening. Upon his arrival, the mayor, who had been missing in action pretty much all day, justified his late arrival by stating that he had only just heard about the king's precarious situation. Louis, to his credit, called Petion out on his bullshit, replying frankly, That is astonishing, 
since this has been continuing for some hours. With the king's personal safety secured, the day passed, almost miraculously, without bloodshed. However, while the person of the king remained in one piece, the image of the king was undeniably in tatters. What semblance of authority and prestige the monarchy had after the flight to Varenne was now no more. The last vestures of royal supremacy had been permanently erased. Officially, Louis was king of the French. Realistically, he was just a man. A citizen with a liberty cap. Not a king with a crown. The events of 20 June 1792 made it clear for all to see that the French constitutional monarchy was dysfunctional and unsustainable. What remained unclear, however, was which of the many competing factions would prevail. Despite his unpopularity amongst some Parisian sections, the outrages inflicted upon the king scandalised some corners of the kingdom. The nation's hereditary representative and the nation's elected representatives had been subjected to humiliation and intimidation. This was unacceptable to many, and the day's events spurred a brief reaction in favour of the monarchy. In Paris, the more conservative sections denounced the actions of their radical counterparts, while in the assembly, petitions from across the country arrived to protest the monarch's treatment. A Parisian petition garnered 20,000 signatures, condemning the actions of the demonstrators, while another petition went as far as to demand vengeance against the wretches who had violated the safe haven of the hereditary representative of the nation and insulted his inviolable and sacred person. For a moment, it appeared as if a reactionary movement, akin to the tricolour terror, could once more be unleashed. The mayor of Paris, Petion, had been suspended from his duties as mayor, while some petitions called for the disillusion of the clubs, and others demanded the empowerment of the war hero Lafayette. Lafayette, although commanding an army on the front lines, was by no means on the sidelines. With Barnev having retired, Lafayette was by far the most influential and powerful for Yon. From this position of authority, The former deputy had already publicly attacked the capital's political clubs just a few days prior to the tumultuous demonstration on the 20th of June. In a provocative letter, Lafayette had denounced the Jacobins, proclaiming them to be the sole source of the nation's disorder. The tumultuous events of the 20th seemed to vindicate the general's claims. In the aftermath of the demonstration, the hero of two worlds went further. Having left his army in the field, Lafayette passionately spoke before the assembly itself on the 28th of June. Dressed in his uniform, the former deputy and the former Jacobin demanded drastic action, including the closure of the clubs and the curtailment of the press. 
Furthermore, he demanded punishments for the atrocities committed the week prior. I beg the National Assembly to order that the instigators of the crimes and violence committed on 20 June in the Tuileries be prosecuted and punished as criminals for damaging the nation and to destroy a sect that infringes sovereignty and tyrannizes citizens and whose public debates leave no room for doubt about the atrocity of the plans of those who lead it. In demanding the closure of the clubs, the curtailment of the press, and the punishment of the ringleaders of 20 June, Lafayette was doing more than asking for an aggressive enforcement of the law. He was, in essence, laying the groundwork for a coup, for a reactionary revision of the Constitution of 1791. Beyond leaders had failed to fundamentally alter the Constitution in the aftermath of the Tricolour Terror. Perhaps this would be their chance to solidify the gains of the revolution and stop the regime's drift towards radicalism and anarchy. Like Roland, Lafayette had taken extraordinary steps in June 1792 because he believed something had to be done. While the two men sought different objectives, the Girondin and the Fillon both recognised that the status quo was unsustainable. Despite his different approach, however, the hero of two worlds was no more successful than the former interior minister. Having said his piece in front of the assembly, Lafayette was surprised to find himself almost immediately on the defensive. The Girondin deputy Godet proposed that the general be indicted for leaving his military post without proper authorization. Against this accusation, Lafayette had no credible response. He had abandoned his post. Thankfully for the AWOL general, the assembly protected the most famous son of liberty. Godet's motion of indictment was voted down 339 to 234, but the momentum had shifted. Jacobins, be they Girondins or Montagnards, found in the commander a common enemy. Left-wing revolutionaries briefly united to focus their attacks on the Fillon leader, who had played such a critical role in the Champ de Mars massacre and by association the Tricolour Terror. Now viewed as the face of reaction, the left accused Lafayette of desertion and Robespierre called for the general's arrest. Others denounced him as a scoundrel, a traitor, a new Cromwell. Dismissed by the assembly, Lafayette took one last roll of the dice and appealed to the National Guard. Here too, Lafayette was rebuffed, with insufficient numbers willing to back their former commander. Deprived of the support of both the assembly and the guard, the war hero commanded attention, but little else. His coup foiled, Lafayette slinked back to the frontier. He would remain there until his defection less than two months later. Historian Peter McPhee describes these events as a fatal miscalculation on the part of Lafayette, one where his vanity had led him to exaggerate his influence. Perhaps this is the case, 
but I would argue inaction was hardly possible either. In fact, in the episode extra for this episode, I'll be making the case that Lafayette's failed schemes were worth undertaking and exploring the lack of assistance he got from certain important individuals. As alluded to by the Assembly's rebuff of Lafayette, the brief reaction in favour of the monarchy was just that. Brief. Committed revolutionaries remained resolute in their convictions, even if they were dismayed at the events of the day. One scene involving the revolutionary Merlin de Thonville underscores this reality. Historian Adolf Thiers writes, The king, the queen, her sister and children now joined each other, shedding torrents of tears. The king, bewildered by the scene which had just passed, still kept the red cap on his head and perceiving it for the first time after many hours, flung it from him with indignation. New deputies now arrived to inform themselves of the state of the palace. The queen accompanied them over the apartments, pointed out to them the shattered doors and broken furniture, and expressed her grief at the commission of so many outrages. Merlin de Toinville, one of the most fiery republicans, was among the number of these deputies. The queen perceived tears in his eyes. You weep, she said, to see the king and his family treated so cruelly by a people whom he had always desired to make happy. It is true, madame, replied Merlin, that I weep at the misfortunes of a sensitive and beautiful woman, the mother of a family. But do not misunderstand me. My tears are neither for the king nor the queen. I hate kings and queens. To hate them is my religion. As seen in de Tonville's hostile reply, the nation's deep divisions remained ever-present. France was beset by a tremendous number of problems, and sympathy for the person of the king did not translate automatically into support for the position of the crown. Republicanism remained alive and well, and so too did radical populism, which didn't necessarily advocate for a republic, but did advocate for further democratic reforms. Furthermore, while some were outraged by the treatment of the monarchs, many of the city's most revolutionary leftists were unapologetic for the events on the 20th of June. This was particularly the case amongst some of the city's more radical sections and clubs. Some revolutionaries asserted that any outrage over the events was itself outrageous, for the events of the 20th had been a legitimate expression of the people's will. In defending the actions of the crowd, these revolutionaries emphasised that the people had retired peacefully and had merely visited the king. Supporting them were, believe it or not, petitions from across the country. Just as petitions arrived at the assembly condemning the atrocity of the 20th of June, so too did letters supporting the popular demonstration. In particular, petitions from the southeast of France often rallied behind what was perceived to be the legitimate actions of an aggrieved people. This wide spectrum of responses from across the entire country further underscores just how divided France was. 
There was, however, one revolutionary more than willing to condemn the popular demonstration of the 20th. Or, more accurately, more than willing to condemn the individuals he saw as being the instigators of the demonstration. Adding to the already venomous rivalry between the two camps, Robespierre had steered clear of the events of June 20, but attacked the Girondins for what he saw as needlessly provoking the demonstration. Whether or not the Girondins were actually behind the day's events is not a clear-cut case, as the origins of the protest remains a little murky. Some historians, such as historians Jonathan Israel and Charlia Matthews, do incriminate the Girondins as architects of the popular demonstration. Matthews states explicitly that the Girondins hoped to terrify the king in order to have the vetoes repealed. Israel presents a different angle, explaining that the Girondins were, in principle, opposed to mass intimidation, but decided upon this course of action because it was the only means that they had to thwart the enemies of the revolution. By this, the conspiracy-obsessed Girondins meant everyone from the court, the priests, the counter-revolutionaries, and the fions, including Lafayette and other members of the military high command. Like some historians, contemporaries also accused the Girondins of being responsible for the day's events. Robespierre unapologetically accused the Girondins of provoking the volatile demonstration solely for the purpose of recalling their ministers. However, some historians completely reject the idea that the Girondins were behind the actions of the mob. In fact, even the historians who implicate the Girondins acknowledge the significant help they received from men of influence within the city's municipal sections and political societies. While historians debate how involved Georges Danton was in the day's events, other lesser but still prominent Sankulot leaders did play a large and active role. Furthermore, if you believe that the Girondins were not involved, or that they merely facilitated rather than instigated the protest, then the sole responsibility for the day's events falls on the shoulders of the leaders of the city's sections and political societies. Indeed, some historians, like historian Charles Mallet, asserts that the Girondins held aloof, that the responsible men, like Brousseau and Vernieu, held back, and that it was instead the actions of the subordinate popular leaders who drove the popular demonstration. This included men like Louis Lujan, the butcher who called the king a villain. Lujan was a founding member of the Colidelier Club, and a close friend of the better-known Danton. It also included men like Santer, the influential and popular brewer who was already an unofficial commander of an armed unit of Saint-Culottes. It was these types of individuals who were the principal leaders of the demonstration of the 20th of June. These people of influence who commanded authority within their local communities, including local popular societies and section assemblies. How involved the Girondins were, or were not, is in many ways a trivial point, because it wasn't the Girondins who commanded the loyalty and support of the thousands of Parisians who took to the streets. No, 
The mobilization of thousands of people was the work of local leaders, local grassroots leaders of clubs, of societies, of section assemblies, of neighborhood militias, of various sorts of associations and communities. And this point takes us to the two critical takeaways from this entire event, and they center on the leadership of these local leaders. The first key takeaway is that these events exposed clearly for all to see who were the true wielders of power in revolutionary Paris by the middle of 1792. The events of June 20 not only revealed a helpless monarch, but a helpless assembly. Neither institution was able to offer any semblance of resistance against the local popular leaders of the city's various urban associations. Local revolutionary organisations, be they section assemblies, clubs, militias or any other form of association, now combined with a free and radical press to create a force that not only rivaled the established authorities of Paris, but in fact surpassed it. The influence that these less known but respected local popular leaders had over Parisians, particularly the Sanculottes, was significant. So significant that it threatened the very existence of the new regime. Prior to 1789, it was the nobility which officially led society. In 1789, the men of letters took their place. By 1792, however, butchers and brewers could lead what amounted to an entire city, thanks to their influence within their community's local revolutionary associations. This leads us to the second key revelation from all of these developments. The 20th of June is not so much important for what occurred, but instead for what it foreshadowed. On the 20th of June, the crowd and its revolutionary leaders threatened and intimidated both the assembly and the court. On this occasion, aggrieved Parisians only wanted to demonstrate. But, what if they wanted to do more than that in the future? What if the goal wasn't demonstration, but insurrection? With Lafayette now politically neutralised, the only authority capable of defending the fragile and increasingly terminal constitutional monarchy was the Assembly itself. But the Legislative Assembly was riddled with factional divisions, and the King was preventing volunteers who would be needed in any trial of strength between the sections and the Assembly. By the end of June 1792, the constitutional monarchy was unsustainable. The regime's problems were simply too great. All that remained was for a trial of strength. The demonstration of the 20th of June was merely a dress rehearsal for what was about to come. Thank you for listening to episode 32, Uninvited Guests. Next time, we'll be discussing the infamous Brunswick Manifesto and the prelude to the insurrection of 10 August. This week's episode extra for sponsors of the show will be diving into Lafayette's attempts to reverse the rise of the radicals in Paris. 
while historian Peter McPhee describes Lafayette's attempts to reverse this course as a fatal miscalculation influenced by his vanity, I'll be exploring why this is perhaps a little too harsh, and I'll also explain some very important assistance that Lafayette did not receive. As always, if you've enjoyed today's show, if you want more grey history, please tell people about the show, and please consider donating a dollar for future episodes. If you're after more grey history, don't forget to check out the bonus episodes for Patreon supporters of the show. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.